Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. We're still in disease-related lockdown mode here at my remote mountain lair, but that's not going to stop me from talking to some interesting folks. Today's interesting person is Derek Pullins, who teaches history at SNHU and at the University of Phoenix. Today we're going to talk about his background, a, a bit about World War II, uh, Derrett's interest in the use of photography in history, and the closure of the University of Phoenix's physical campus in Detroit, Michigan. What is your name and what do you do? Hi, uh, my name is Derrett Pullins and uh, I have a master's in humanities and right now I am currently the campus operations manager for a closing campus, the uh, University of Phoenix, our campus in Detroit is closing, so I do that as well as teach online for uh, Southern New Hampshire University and as well as uh, become community college. So I kind of stay busy. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I didn't wasn't aware that you were affiliated with that that location. We may end up talking about that a little bit later, but maybe not. We'll, okay. we'll, we'll get to it. <laughs> All right. Very good. In the meantime, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your professional and your academic background? Oh, absolutely. Well, uh, just to start off, I uh, graduated with a Bachelor of Arts from Cornell University in government. And after some time in working in retail and doing some freelance photography, decided it was time to go back to get an advanced degree. And I ended up getting a Master's of Arts in Humanities from Central Michigan University. And since graduating in 2003, I went right to uh, adjunct teaching. And I've been doing that now for 16 years. And what were your uh, major research projects during um, either your undergrad or during your grad program? Well, during the grad program, the research really had to do with more individual classes. So it wasn't one real big history, you know, let's delve into uh, writing a 200 page thesis. But I will say that uh, ever since I was a child, thanks to my father, I'll blame him for, for this one. There was always history books around <laughs> in, the, in the house. So history really became kind of a natural thing for me because of all of the books that were around. And so history became a, an interest, a passion. And um, you know, through the uh, interim, and because of the knowledge that I accumulated outside of the formal academia, academic and academia uh, training, I ended up becoming what they call the lead faculty area chair for the history department here at uh, the University of Phoenix's Detroit campus. So I did that for a couple of years. Um, now you were talking about how your dad always had books around the house and all that. Are there any specific, you know, time periods or regions of the planet that that have always interested you more than others? Well, I think being an American that knowing the history of your own country is paramount because in order to know where we're going to go, we need to know from whence we came. So American history, I've always found to be really intriguing, especially the Second World War and how we got into it, not directly, but indirectly. I'm not even talking about the attack on Pearl Harbor. I'm talking about uh, a man who saw what was coming and didn't want his countrymen to be caught flat-footed. So he started ramping up things, and fortunately for not only America, but the world, that his foresight in seeing certain patterns, uh, I think, of behavior in history, that he was able to keep the destruction level, at least to this country, at a bare minimum. Well, that's that's great. Yeah, World War II is, is kind of an, a topic of endless fascination for historians and non-historians alike, but there's a lot of really great material there and a lot of great people that you can talk about uh, or study about that, that were involved with the war and all of that. I'm just going to say that, you know, World War II for America, it was a, it's a pivotal, pivotal point in our history because we went from being a country of, of isolationists to a country of people who were involved in everything. And it, it's probably due to 
the activities of World War One and Two, when you think about uh, a generation later, we're back into the European war. So uh, are we doing things to avoid future destructive conflict or you know, what is our motive for being, the, as they say, now the world's policeman? Yeah, that's always been a kind of a topic that I try to address in my whenever I'm teaching classes on the the, the world wars and the interwar period is there's, you know, World, world War One really presented kind of a case study in what not to do <laughs> at the end of a world war. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to try to stop future wars from happening, because, you know, pretty much every decision that the, that the victorious powers made after World War One came back to bite right. them really badly a couple like, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later. And so it's interesting that World War II ended very differently. It is interesting that World War II still led to the Cold War conflict, which kind of indicates that the settlement at the end of World War II didn't solve all of the problems, but at least it wasn't a, it didn't develop into a massive worldwide shooting war like had happened before. There were still plenty of small scale conflicts, Vietnam, Korea, Afghanistan, various places around the world where there were armed conflicts happening, but it didn't blow up into a truly global conflict like the earlier wars. Absolutely. And I would even argue that one of the reasons why we had the issues post-World War II was because America and its allies were not really understanding of Stalin. They had no idea or concept of you beat your enemy and you give them their territory back, where Stalin was like, we've been invaded by this side of Europe so many times that we need a buffer zone to protect ourselves. And I think somewhere in the conversations, well, they probably weren't even had. And I don't think there were enough experts in history that sat on uh, Roosevelt's cabinet and then um, Truman's cabinet that could have said, I understand their paranoia and that's what this is. And maybe we should react a little differently and um, work through this. So, you know, perhaps if you start to think about history and historians, that somebody needs to be around to tell folks, oh, we're about to go down that rabbit hole. Don't want to do that. Which is interesting because there were some very smart people working for Roosevelt and Truman. I mean, you think like George Kennan was pretty well read, well knew the Soviets well, knew Russian history, but still kind of got swept up in the whole Cold War containment mentality. And so there was it, it feels like there were smart people, but they were either... I don't know if they were just blind or they were, well, they were probably just caught up in the moment that, oh my, this is a very dramatic moment. This is a, what, what's going to happen next? And holy cow, now there's atomic weapons. And so the whole balance of power around the world has changed. And so I imagine there was a sense of, we need to deal with the here and now. But yeah, it, it's it's interesting that there weren't very many people saying, right. well, you know, the, <laughs> the Soviets did just lose 25 right. million people in this war. And I mean, we, we talked about, you know, four hundred thousand dead Americans. You, that's nothing to you know. You don't want to, you don't want to downplay that from the but from the Soviet perspective. That's like a Tuesday. That's the, that's that's like the Battle of Stalingrad. You know, they lost more than that in one battle. And so it's it's interesting to think about it from the Soviet perspective and the fact that the Americans did not. And that's 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 one of the other things I try to bring up in my when I'm lecturing to, to students about the the origins of the Cold War is. Um, the Soviet take on all of that, because that's the thing that tends to get left out when we're focusing on the American side, because the Soviet, it's, it's actually kind of fun. Uh, I put together a lecture at one point where I spend the entire hour narrating the history of the Cold War from the Soviet perspective. And so you start with, uh, you know, the American invasion of Vladivostok during the Russian Revolution, going through Comintern and, and America's 
uh, slowness at getting going in World War II from the Soviet perspective. It's, and it just builds from there. There's this snowballing offenses that the Americans are doing against the Soviets that are kind of building the Soviets into this anti-American machine, much the same way that the U.S. is being built into an anti-Soviet machine. So it's kind of interesting to show the two parallels there, that it's not just a one-sided thing. Right, absolutely. And they also forget, fail to, to, to stop and realize that World War One was disastrous for the uh, for the Russians before they became the Soviets. So if you're looking at that generational, oh, here we go again, uh, to, you know, 25 in World War Two. Uh, I think 17, 18 million is one estimate that I read in World War One. Uh, that's, that's a lot of people to have been wiped out in, you know, a little over a generation and a half. And you have to look at that and go, yeah, we can't trust that side of the world. So I understand why when the Soviets beat the Germans, that those buffer states in between, they wanted to keep them. I mean, they're, literally, they're buffer states. So, it, it, you know, there's a certain amount of logic to how uh, um, uh, human beings behave. And that's why I think with history, you know, somebody has to kind of look at the history of, of the world. For instance, if you go back to far, as far as Alexander the Great, when he conquered countries, he didn't enslave the population. He didn't destroy what they were doing. He says, well, we're making you part of the empire and you can have all the full benefits because he realized that better to have a compliant population than a rebellious one. One of those lessons of war that, has, that humans have never been very good at learning. <laughs> it's, but it, there are some examples like that that really show that, no, that th there are ways of doing it that can help to ensure long-term success. There's other ways to do it that will surely prevent long-term success. And so it's, it's, it's disheartening to see, you know, in certain instances when people start following that. Right. And then, as you said well. earlier, you know, people can get swept up in things because it becomes popular. And depending upon who's delivering the message, I mean, you know, right now, what are we looking at? We're looking at a, a media that is um, kind of pervasive in our society and people are getting information that may not necessarily be fact-checked or true. And so where there's a veracity, a veracity issue where now all of a sudden it becomes, well, who do I believe? And and that's always been my argument for mm -hmm. having professional historians where they can put in the energy to look at all of these different perspectives. And then they're the ones you should go to and say, okay, well, what sounds right to you? And then make a rational decision based upon that as opposed to who shouts loudest in the wind, who may not necessarily be the right voice. Yeah. So it's, um, well, you know, now that we've figured out World War II history, <laughs> let's, um, <laughs> let's, let's get back to talking about your, uh, your background, your career and all of that. So you mentioned that you've been working for a while for the uh, University of Phoenix in Detroit. Can you tell us a little bit about that job, how you found that job, and then what that job has been like while you've been uh, in that position? Okay. Well, uh, Really, when I started out with uh, the University of Phoenix, I'd already been adjunct faculty at uh, Macomb Community College for five years, five, six years, and looking for some other opportunities and avenues and as, as they say, associate faculty at uh, the University of uh, Phoenix. And that then kind of transitioned into as um, the campus was in its teach out phase that I became the campus operations manager. Based, because, based on, honestly, my history of being uh, what they call the lead faculty area chair, which allowed me to be in charge of uh, over 200 faculty, but I was specifically charged with uh, making sure those under me in history were doing what they're supposed to do. So uh, it, just, it was just kind of, I think, a logical pro progression. And also, I do, you know, I do freelance photography work because I think there's also the visual history 
of things that have to be captured and maintained. And uh, I'll tell you about that uh, in, a, in a second. But because people would see me taking pictures of uh, different events at the campus, I was almost like a logical kind of choice to to fulfill that role um, since, you know, I kind of knew the history of the there. And so the so you mentioned that the campus is is shutting down. Um, well, it, it, it's no longer past, it's not a present progressive. It's, it's actually shut down. Oh, okay. Well, um, I, okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know where to, where to go with that. So, you know, I, I, well, well know, I mean, it, it, it was both. fun. I, I enjoyed, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. And it was, it was a great opportunity to, uh, to really create another sense of history because you know, now I have some history with all of those things that brought us to uh, the end and, you know, met a lot of wonderful people who quite frankly, I might just contact them to get their personal histories um, because there was a lot of folks that had wonderful histories. We had uh, uh, teachers that uh, were in World War II. Uh, we had people using our facilities that had other great personal histories that, quite frankly, I wish that I had been walking around with a tape recorder, the ABC, and G, because those are important too, so that would generations know that they didn't just invent the wheel. The wheel's been around a while, maybe uh, got different, different spokes and hubs on them, but the wheel's still the wheel. Yeah. So do you know, or can you summarize, what is kind of the brief history of that campus? How long has it been there? What was the, uh, you know, what was the, the student body like? What were the overall intentions of the of the university? Well, the, the campus had been around for 19 years, almost 20 years. And I think, well, actually, no, well, I take that back. It, the building that I was in was, we had for 19 years. Actually, the campus had been around since 1995. And what they wanted to do, was, which is something a lot of universities wanted to do, which is educate the population, give them different experiences, allow them the opportunity to thrive and prosper. And, and you know, and that happened. And, uh, you know, and I, it happens, I think, not. There are a lot of people that have good intentions that of making the world a better place. And they were very successful at it. And, and of course, they're still around. I mean, we have an online uh, presence and we still have some campuses. But their you know, decisions were made to kind of consolidate and move things more uh, online so everything would be a lot more con- convenient for the learners. Right. So it's not as though the whole university is shutting down. They're just, there's just, it's that one campus that's closing, but they still are available online and all of that. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. And of course, if you're out in um, Phoenix, well, uh, you can have an on ground experience. That's true. Have you ever been out to that campus? No, I, I haven't. I'm not much of a traveler. Me and airplanes just don't get along too well. Uh, I mean, even though I decided uh, last month to celebrate my birthday that I uh, bought a ride on uh, B-17, Yankee Lady. So that was like a 30-minute uh, trip, and I think it took me about 15 minutes to finally get up out of that seat. Yeah. <laughs> because what Hollywood because <laughs> what Hollywood tells you about warfare and being in those planes, I'll tell you, they, they should really be taken to task because, you know, you hear people talking and it, I'm telling you right now, there's too much noise. You can't hear anybody talk. Mm-hmm. And we only got up to maybe about 2000 feet. So we didn't have to have any protective gear and all that. But if we had to wear protective gear, uh, you know, like those bombers up to altitude, it would not have been a comfortable ride at all. Yeah, I heard that those things are like tiny, and they're—I mean—they're they're just the physical space is very confined and all that, which makes sense. I mean, you can't—it's an airplane; you got to build it as small and efficient as you can. But yeah, I remember reading somewhere that, from a modern perspective, a lot of America today just cannot possibly fit into those airplanes. Well, I'm six feet tall, and um, yeah, I mean, I could have done 
30 seconds, about 50 miles lighter, but I'll tell you, it was uh, not an easy thing for me to do. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm glad I wasn't around having to be in one of these things at altitude. And um, and I even wrote them, to, uh, the, the people at uh, the Yankee Air Museum, that I wish they would give children free tours of that airplane so they kind of have a much better perspective of what those experiences could have been, might have been, and were. So they're not brought up with this Hollywood nonsense of a 12 o'clock high, you know, that, uh, oh, yeah, we're just going to have a, ne- a nice conversation like we're next to each other. And now you got on headphones. It's a constant dr- uh, droning of the of the engines. And I'm sure at altitude, it's probably very cold. Well, that's interesting. That's a really cool present to give to yourself, too. That's uh, now I'm curious. I want to try that out, too. Oh, it was a lot of fun until we were on final approach. So a flight engineer is saying something to me and, of course, can't hear because we all have on uh, these air protectors. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's pointing and says, you know, we're landing and I'm in the nose of the plane. And, you know, the nose kind of juts out there. And the only thing he's protecting is plexiglass. And, you know, I'm kind of like, oh, oh, <laughs> this right. is going to not be fun. <laughs> so, <laughs> Right. So by the time I strapped in, I mean, we had landed, but I remember thinking, you know, wow, those those gentlemen were definitely uh, heroes of their time, whether they were 18, 19, 20 years old. But to, to go from maybe a, a farmer in, in, in Iowa or living in New York City to, you know, fighting in something that's maybe about six, seven feet wide. And, you know, some of the walk spaces was maybe about 12 inches, not even that, maybe even less than that, that uh, they had to be also very bright. I mean, look at me. I mean, I'm much older than that. I'm thinking, I'm not doing that. Anyway, anyway that, was, that, that, was just, that was just one of my perspectives of, of history and how, I, you know, I think I can add now to bringing some understanding of, a, of a, an experience I didn't personally have, but try to impart upon another generation that these are experiences that we don't want people to have because they were experiences that caused major destruction in in the world. I mean, you know, the, the last building was rebuilt in Germany. It was, I think, 1985. It was 40 years after the war was over. So, you know, that's a long time. So, so far you've been talking about your, uh, your background, your career at places like Phoenix and all that. So what comes next for you? Well, what comes next is uh, return to what I've done on a freelance basis for the last uh, 40 years or so, which is photography, which is just another medium, as far as I'm concerned, for basically capturing history. You know, when you take a picture, or make a photograph or whatever, you're, you know, you're capturing a moment in time. And the old saying goes, if a picture's worth a thousand words, you know, it gives you an opportunity to reach people who may or may not be interested in sitting down and reading an entire book, but there may be something in that image that makes them want to, as I say, dive deeper into a subject and decide that that uh, history is something they should pursue. I mean, you know, give an example, 1968, that uh, famous picture of uh, the South uh, Vietnamese uh, chief of police in Saigon shooting uh, uh, Viet Cong in the head, which really changed uh, people's outlook on the Vietnam War. So that one photo basically kind of summed up the, the level of frustration, I think, on both sides of, uh, of the war and uh, it made everything take a different turn. So, you know, photography, as far as I'm concerned, goes hand in hand with with history. So I'm just going to take a, a little different uh, tact, I think, as far as, the, 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 you know, the history uh, aspect of you know, what I have been doing. 
think that's great. I think that historians, I think that'd be good for the profession is to try to get back into, if they ever really were into, a kind of a photographic mindset, because we do tend to focus on the written documents, written records and all of that. And that makes sense because there's a lot of information packed into written documents, but there's also a lot of value in the historical historical photography. I mean, there's an entire, what is it? The um, Arcadia Press or the History Press that keeps publishing the Images of America series of books where, you know, every, every neighborhood in, in the United States has its own book dedicated to it, but it's basically just full of pictures with captions. There's not a whole lot of actual text or narrative to it. It's just a focus on the, on the images. And I think that that has some value for people, especially when they want to get to know a specific area. Oh, absolutely. And I do own a, you know, a lot of, uh, of those books uh, just to, you know, show you that, uh, you know, I know that there is going to be more of that visual aspect. Everybody has a cell phone and everybody has a camera. So coupling that, you realize that people not only are they doing selfies, but for those people who are in an environment or situation that they capture that could be newsworthy or whatever, I mean, they are preserving history. So the, the big trick might be for those of us who are interested in history is making sure that those are preserved and maybe come back and then add a little bit to, uh, you know, what was uh, actually seen, what was experienced. And you know, one of the things that I'd like to do uh, is actually get more of the family history that, that we have, um, the people who are still living, you know, you know do some uh, videotaping of them. So that way, future generations have a much better idea as to what was experienced as opposed to that word of mouth. And, you know, maybe I should even do some of that because I'm I've heard a lot of family uh, history and stories that probably should be preserved because once I'm no longer here, well, there's going to be an entire line of uh, family members that will just basically cease to exist as well. Yeah. Yeah. Family history is fascinating. I'm actually in the middle of reading a memoir by, (laughs) it's actually a science fiction writer who is, but the, the memoir focuses a lot on his family and his family it just sounds like the worst bunch of people. And it just makes for a fascinating <laughs> history because uh, the the book is by J. J., uh, J. Michael Straczynski, who was the guy that created Babylon 5. Babylon 5. Five. Yeah. Um, anyway, he wrote a memoir called Becoming Superman that I'm in the middle of right now. And in that book, he's talking, his father was not just a Nazi sympathizer, but like a full-on not Hitler youth. Really? <laughs> and, and then throughout the rest of his life, he was just a complete, uh, you know, psychopathic, you know, he beat his wife every night, beat his kids every night. And so, but, but it creates an interesting window into, into the past. When you're talking about it from a historic, from a family perspective, you can get, you don't have to rely so much on far flung written records and all that you can, but you also have to deal with the stories that the family tells each other about the past, because he talks about how it took decades for him to really figure out just how evil his father was and you know the spoilers spoilers and all that that i won't go into but you got to okay. read to the end to the end of the book because it's all the, the, the book is all building up to the it's kind of like he phrases it as, as a murder mystery and at the end of it there's 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 this big payoff that demonstrates just how evil <laughs> some of the family was but anyway but the local local history and family history i think is one of the things that really excites it excites me i I'm, i really like doing local history and family history and all that because it it really it feels more immediate um and when it comes down to it i mean local government local commissions and all that play a huge role in people's lives and so i think it makes sense to focus on local history to get a sense of what's going on in your immediate surroundings that's what shaped the development of the place you live and will shape kind of the the development of the place you live going forward 
Absolutely. And it's amazing when you mention J. Michael Straczynski talking about his father being uh, a Hitler youth. Can you imagine what's going to happen in another probably 10, 15 years as all of those people who were in World War II are no longer with us? Uh, you know, the folks who met those people, like, for instance, myself, I've you know managed to meet uh, people who were Tuskegee Airmen, managed to meet a, a gentleman that was a B-17 bomber pilot who was protected by the Tuskegee Airmen, and that was an interesting uh, discussion that we had. Uh, met a fellow who was... Um, uh, B, I think it's a uh, BF-190 pilot. So uh, interesting because I could still hear, still hear him almost go Zeke Heil in the background and met a, a man who was a member of the uh, 442nd Battalion, which were the first generation Japanese Americans that fought for the Americans, of course, during World War II. So, you know, when you get that living history and then, you know, some of the stories they've told me might well, they should live through me if they have not told other people. But then the next set of folks will be removed. So it won't have that same kind of impact to say that, well, I heard about, as opposed to I met a person who uh, his, his, his company was the highest decorated in the Second World War. They also had the highest amount of casualties or the Tuskegee Airmen who never lost a, a bomber under their protection or people who were ardent Nazis and other folks who, uh, you know, saw things that happened in Nazi Germany, but weren't able to do anything about it because they were either A, too young, or B, they were caught up in things and didn't want to pay the price. Or even meeting people who had uh, survived concentration camps, and I've met a few of those folks. Heartbreaking stories. And I think the farther we, we get from that time, the easier it's going to be for people to deny things ever happened. So you know, we always have to kind of be on guard to make sure that the human experience, or at least some experiences, are never repeated. Because the next war that we have might just be the one that you know, just poisons this, this planet to the point where none of us are going to be able to survive really well. Or it might be so post-apocalyptic, it'll be like the end of Planet of the Apes or something. Right. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the... Um... Uh, the Tuskegee Airmen, uh, just to kind of bring the, the connection to local history. I, I'm in Columbus, Ohio, and there was a suburb named Hanford Village, which was the first uh, black suburb in Columbus. It was specifically marketed to to um, black people to come in and buy these houses. And um, it was fairly close to Rickenbacker Airfield on the south side of Columbus, which was a I don't know how long term it was, but for a while anyway, this the, that base was home for a bunch of Tus Tuskegee Airmen who lived in this um, this Hanford Village community, which was built just after World War II. And then in the 1960s, as they built an interstate through town, of course, where did the interstate go? But was right through that village. To, so basically a big chunk of that village was leveled to make room for the interstate. And so now there's this weird little, small little grid of the surviving houses that's probably, you know, a third the size it used to be because now there's a massive interstate that carved through it. But um, that's really all that's left. And they, it's, it's interesting that they, they, they kept the uh, Ohio Historical Society has actually put up a marker sign there. And there has been efforts to preserve some of these houses because of the historical value of this of this neighborhood. Um, but, you know, again, a huge chunk of it was lost through the uh, construction of that infrastructure. And so, you know, interesting how it all comes first, full circle. And, and the same thing happened in Detroit, where there was an area that was predominantly African-American. They called Black Bottom, which, mm. um, strangely enough, you know, my relatives uh, lived. 
And back in the mid-60s, the uh, same thing happened. Uh, they wanted to put it in an interstate, I-75. It was considered to be, that area is considered to be the area that, well, had the least political clout. So, mm-hmm. you know, it went through there. And that area really has never recovered from uh, right. that uh, that decimation. But uh, just a, a quick little side note, as you were talking about the Tuskegee Airmen, that uh, a fellow I met some years ago who was at Tuskegee at the time because he used to work with George Washington Carver, and his name was uh, Dr. Austin W. Curtis uh, Jr. He had a um, place here in Detroit where he uh, did the hair care products and all that. He had a lot of interesting stories to tell about uh, growing up and uh, working with Dr. Carver and uh, going to Cornell and all that. So, you know, I've, I've had a, some wonderful opportunities to meet some interesting people. Now, whether or not I will have a, an opportunity to write a book about all of that stuff, I don't know. But um, I think it's interesting when you run across people whose lives were so different, whether good or bad. When I say bad, I mean, you know, obviously being in a concentration camp is not my idea of a fun time. But to learn about these things and try to impart upon other folks that we don't want to repeat certain types of behaviors. Because if we do, again, we have uh, nuclear weapons. We have weapons as a mass destruction. Thinking about machine guns and you know pistols. Again, when I was a kid, if you had a 38 Special in New York, oh, you were big time. Uh, I don't think I've seen a 38 Special in, oh my goodness, 30, no, 40 plus years. Because everybody has nine millimeters now. Because they shoot faster and they shoot a lot more. So, uh, you know, there are there are technology versus our ability to cope with some of these things. I think is. Uh, that's the real danger. You know, why haven't we dropped another atomic bomb? Because we've seen the result and I don't think we want that again. Right. Hopefully we don't want that again. Yeah. I, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> or I hope not. Yeah. I, I don't want that again. So, okay. Well, thank you. That makes a lot of sense. Um, do you have any last thoughts uh, for that you want to pass along to any history students at the undergrad or the graduate level, people that are looking to kind of make their way in the world or looking for historical careers. Do you have any last minute thoughts for those folks? Well, I think a couple of things one should do is as you think about, you know, well, is history worthless or whatever? Of course it's not worthless. Um, in fact, if you look at where we are today in America and how we deal with other countries, I think we could do a much better job. If we had people who were historians and understood the nature of, say, uh, China, understood the nature of other countries, we could deal with them better. Because if you understand people, their background, their wants, their desires, or the things that have happened to them where they don't want to repeat that again, uh, it's understandable. Uh, I think post-World War II had Americans had a better understanding of the paranoia that Stalin had and why he wanted buffer states to keep you know, people from Western Europe from invading his country ever again. Yeah, I mean, I could understand that. I could understand China not wanting to be dominated again by the West, doing whatever they need to do to make sure that they're not. It makes perfectly logical sense. So one of the things that kind of even intrigued me about all of that is reading books by William Manchester, who's a very learned man, and all of his books are voluminous, uh, at least 700 pages plus, mm-hmm. and he wrote about uh, the German uh, armaments uh, family, the, the Krupps, who you know, 300 plus years were like the armaments uh, kings to, to, to Germany. Um, American Caesar, which was about Doug, Douglas MacArthur. So he did a lot of this wonderful research, and you, as you're reading, you start to understand 
the people that he is discussing. So again, uh, whether you're in a you know whatever job you have, you should understand that the history of that job that you're in, the people you're around. So everything has a purpose. And again, the easiest way to to deal with anything is to understand the history of the people or the environment in which you've been placed. And so history is is on a daily basis is necessary. Agreed. Yes. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And thank you for, um, thank you for that. Uh, now you mentioned a minute ago, uh, William Manchester, um, before we started talking here, you had talked about how you were going to use him as your recommendation. So would you like to go into some more detail about him? Being a professor at the, the Ohio State University, and uh, <laughs> he, he just, <laughs> which I know you're very familiar with, it's, uh, <laughs> his works are just absolutely amazing. Um, as far as authors are concerned, I've read about five or six of his books, and they're the kind of books that just put you into the time or the person's mind, and just fascinating uh, writing yeah, that uh, I was so intrigued by it, uh, all of his writings, that I usually would read one of his books in about a week. So I would tell anybody, who, if you're really interested in, in history, start there. I think he's, he's very... Uh, engaging. I think he's uh, the kind of person who would uh, be inspiring and really make you want to become more of a historian. And even if not a professional one, but at least somebody who becomes more interested in the world around them. Because I think most people now are just caught up in how much money they're going to be making on a job or where their next um, uh, you know, fun place is. But there's a little bit more to life than those things. So, you know, learn about other people so that way you can make better choices. Yeah, William Manchester was fascinating. He is an excellent writer, and it's also just amazing the broad range of his historical interests. I mean, we historians tend to, these days especially, tend to focus on smaller and smaller slivers of history, uh, whether that's a smaller time frame or period. We tend to specialize a lot more. William Manchester is one of those historians who you can't say he ever really specialized. I mean, he wrote books like you were saying on the was the Krupp family, um, Douglas MacArthur. The one of his that I've read two or three times at this point um, is A World Lit Only by Fire, which is on the medieval mind and the Renaissance, um, which <laughs> according to him, it started out as simply he was going to write an introduction to a, friend's, a friend who was writing a biography of Magellan. Um, Manchester wanted to just write an, uh, uh, an introduction for it. Um, and then by the time he was done, the introduction was like two or 300 pages long. And so he just decided, oh, wow. well, I guess I, it's probably a little long for this guy. So I'm just going to go ahead and publish it just, you know, as a standalone work. And um, his basically what he had been trying to do was set the stage for Magellan by talking about what Europe was like before Magellan went out into the world. And so he just got deeper and deeper into the psychology and the daily life and culture and so, social structures of pre-Magellan um, medieval Europe. And it just, you know, when you do that, it's not too surprising, of course, that it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And it grew up into a, into a full size book, but it's, it's an amazing piece of work. And it, it does a, the, the part that I always remember, I mean, it's been probably a good 
15, 20 years since I read it at this point. But uh, the thing that I always st- that always stands out to me is that he has a really, really funny um, description of the the all the of the the line of the popes at one point and how at various times there were like two or three popes arguing with each other and trying to take control and all that. It was just a really am- amusing story to read. And but it's an amazing book, and so I wholly second the recommendation for people to go out and read William Manchester. He was he was amazing. Absolutely. And thanks to William Manchester, uh, I actually met um, an ancestor of, of the Krupps. In fact, the fellow used to be the uh, uh, head of uh, public works here in my town. And we got talking oh. one day and I saw his last name was Bolin. And I said, are you related to you know, the Krupps? And he says, yeah, how did you know that? <laughs> I said, well, uh, you know, Alfred von Krupp uh, from Bolin and Halbach. And he was absolutely amazed that somebody would know about his family history like that so yeah right that's great yeah good choice um my recommendation i'm gonna uh is just the inclusive historians handbook which is a joint publication between the american association for state and local history and the national council on public history it is a the the purpose of this is to help historians uh think and research and write more inclusively um, and with a focus on more equity, because historians, we often talk about the desire to create a more ex- inclusive history of, you know, people, uh, but we don't always know how to do it. And so this handbook was put together. It's online and I'll, I'll put the link in the uh, episode notes here. But the right, handbook you. provides a whole bunch of entries to try to help historians start to figure out the, the ways to do that. And so they've got entries on things like accessibility and civic engagement and and but they also talk about some specific topics like reconstruction and food history and plantations way which are um kind of entry points that that historians can use to see kind of case studies and how you can make historical writing and presentation more inclusive which i think is really important at this point when historians are for you know, like it or not, historians are kind of at a point where we have to kind of justify the importance of history to a jaded world. And, you know, in this world of fake news and all of that, we have to be able to speak to people to say that, no, history matters. History, we we can understand history. It's not all just some sort of biased fake news. There's actual substance here. And so, but in order to do that, we need to learn how to talk to everybody and include a wide variety of ideologies and cultures and gender and all basically make history appeal to a lot more people. And so I think this is a worthy uh, project and I hope that it, uh, I hope that it continues. It's basically, they're building it as kind of like an encyclopedia type thing where they're adding new entries all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So I hope this keeps going and I hope that uh, historians are able to learn from it. I've been actually watching the Ken Burns country music um, show that's been on PBS. And I think that Ken Burns has done a wonderful job over the years and when he does his, uh, his specials and, you know, weaving into his story, how everybody has contributed to some aspect of American culture. So um, I don't know, most people are sitting around watching country music, uh, but I'll tell you after watching six episodes that I'm actually going to start uh, buying some country music and uh, listening a little bit more intently to what's going on. So as far as I'm concerned, I think every time you have an opportunity to learn something about anything, people that you had certain types of, you know, maybe apprehension about, but you get to learn about them, you go, oh, okay, maybe 
you know, I did myself a great disservice. So, yeah, that's going to be the next thing I do is, you know, looking for vinyl of uh, Patsy Cline and Hank Williams and <laughs> and a bunch of other right. folks. And, yeah, folks are probably going to look at me like, oh, what happened to you? I just, well, that's just a, <laughs> that's just another genre of music that I'm going to uh, appreciate even more now. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, good luck with that. Let me know how that goes. I will indeed. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for joining me today, Derek. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And um, hopefully we'll be talking again soon. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. For Derek Pullins, I'm Rob Denning. Have a good day.